Last week, we finished Ezekiel 33, and what was going on in 33 is the exiles were complaining that God was somehow unjust, and what the prophet said in God's name was, I am very just, and if you stop doing bad stuff, you'll be saved. If you were good and you start doing bad stuff, you'll be lost. It's very much that simple. I am very consistent, and the fact that you folks think I'm inconsistent is your problem. That was the import of the whole thing. So now we're going to go to 34, and I will tell you quite frankly, 34 scares me. So 34, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they are scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. You can imagine why this makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. In fact, I think the only thing I've got going for me is that I haven't eaten any of the sheep. But beyond that, I'm not sure how I measure up. I was listening to Ron Dart, and he's in Jeremiah, who was contemporary with Ezekiel. And what both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying is that God holds the pastors responsible for the spiritual state of the nation. They haven't kept Torah. They haven't taught Torah. They haven't judged fairly. And so because they have let Torah slide, all sorts of other things have gone wrong. So God holds them responsible for being the catalyst, if you will, that causes the problems that Israel now sees. And one of the things I talked about on Shabbat is one of the things that the church in the West in general has done is they have inverted scripture. I gave a couple of examples. As I said, I was down with number two son in Texas, and he and I were driving to Home Depot or something and talking about this. And his comment was that the church has inverted scripture. And the example that he used was the church says that polygamy is wrong, but they say homosexuality is right. The Bible says exactly the opposite. And there are a number of examples like that and Yeshua himself talks about it, as do all the prophets. Yeshua talks about it in terms of the prophet Isaiah, who says that Israel has made the Torah void because of the commandments of men. And the example Yeshua uses is the fourth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And what the 
religious establishment in Israel had decided is if you dedicate something to the temple and then your mom and dad need to be bailed out, you can say, well, sorry, mom, but what I would have used to support you has been dedicated to God, so I can't help you. And Yeshua says that by your traditions, then you have made the word of God void. And the same thing is going on here in the United States. And in the West, not just the United States, the Western church. What happens over time is all sorts of pressures get put upon church leaders. And the pressure that gets put on them is a function of where they are. In other words, the pressures that get put on church leaders in the United States would be different than those perhaps in France, etc. But in all cases, what it amounts to is people want to do what they want to do and they go through the Bible looking for loopholes. And the pastors have not reined that stuff in. And so what happens is there's a Methodist church up here on Lookout Road that's got a big rainbow sign on it and everything. And I don't know this, but I'm being snarky, but it's basically become a gay dating club because they accept what God tells them not to. So what's going on here in Ezekiel is God, through the prophet, talks to the people of Israel who are in exile and says, I am entirely just. Don't be complaining that I'm doing something unfair. And then, I'm going to paraphrase now. What 34 is, is you guys in 33 say that I'm unjust. The reason you think I'm unjust is because the pastors have not taught you properly. So if the pastors have not taught you properly and held you to God's standards, then naturally when the consequences of sin manifest themselves in your life, either nationally or individually, you turn and look at God and you say, God, you're being unjust with me. And the problem is not that God's unjust, of course. The problem is you've been taught wrong. And so what the prophet is saying here to the pastors and priests, this says shepherds, which is what pastor means. What he's saying is, I'm holding you guys responsible because you didn't fulfill the task that you had, which is to teach Torah, teach them the ways of God. You didn't do it. As a result of that, they're scattered all over the place. Furthermore, you have used your position to enrich yourselves or to amass power to yourselves. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. What he's saying there is, you folks are preying on the flock as opposed to tending the flock. And as you all know, when we set this place up 21 years ago, we decided that nobody would get paid. And I'm fine with that. God has taken care of paying me. So I'm not at all grumpy about that. But one of the reasons we did that is because of passages like this. And what 
happens if you get your livelihood from the church, then you start looking at the church as, I need more members, I need more offering, I need more, I need more, I need more. And there's a temptation to shade the message in order to avoid alienating people. That's the case. Having said that, however, a pastor who makes his living being a pastor and is paid by the church is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. In the Torah, God says, you guys bring your tithes in, and you're bringing your tithes to me, God, but I don't need your money. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these tithes that you bring to me, and I'm going to use them then to support the priesthood. But the transaction with the tithe is not between the priest and you. The transaction is between you and God. And then God turns around and says, well, I, I don't need this stuff, and gives it to the priests. So a priest being fed, clothed, etc., by his office is not itself wrong. But like everything else, there's a temptation there that lots of people give into. And they wind up doing what's happening here, which is they eat the fat, close themselves with the wool, and don't take care of the flock. All they're interested in themselves. And, and that's the pathology of that. So just like everything, it can be misused. And what's happened, I think, in the West is that it has been misused wholesale, and the church has ceased to be a break on human passions in the West. That's what the church is supposed to do, is teach the Word of God and be a break on everybody going off and doing his own thing, and it has failed at that. And it didn't fail suddenly. It's been going on for quite a while. Back in the 50s, if one of the deacons in the church had announced that my alter ego is a drag queen, I'm going to go read in the library, that wouldn't have lasted two minutes. Go back to the 1900s. It gets more stringent. So it hasn't been revolutionary, it's been evolutionary. And it's gotten to where we are. And it all goes back to Ezekiel 34. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And the idea is instead of being a sheepdog, they have become wolves. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among the sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. This, quite frankly, is messianic. The idea here is the shepherds have failed and the problem, of course, with the shepherds is they are just as human as the sheep are. So failure is something that is not happy, but not unexpected. The idea here is, at the end, the reason that the sheep are scattered among all the nations and so forth is they have gone away from Torah. They have not loved their neighbors or themselves. They have not loved God. They think they do. They're still going to church, but their heart is far from him. And as a result of that, they have been scattered all over the world. So this messianic passage, starting in verse 11, is, okay, you shepherds have not done what you're supposed to do. I'm not terribly surprised, but at the end of the day, I'm going to have to go out and get them myself, and I will do that. This is second coming stuff. In fact, I have a sort of a theory. You have two advents of the Messiah, or at least according to Christian theology you do. We've seen one, but we haven't seen the other one yet, but I'm trusting it's going to happen. The question is, why the delay between the first and the second advent? When Yeshua gets sucked out of the grave and he brings all the corpses out of the graves all over Jerusalem with him, why doesn't he then step out and do this kind of thing? Because Israel, remember, has been in exile. So Israel has been scattered by the Assyrians, it's been scattered by the Babylonians, uh, hadn't been scattered by the Romans yet, but that's coming. And everybody's looking for the Messiah. It's the thing they want. And so he pops out of the grave and starts kicking tail and taking names, sort of like he did when he turned over the money changers' table. We could have had the messianic era right then. The question, of course, is why not? My thought is, and this may not be controversial at all, but my thought is the reason for that is because he's got sheep that are not of that sheepfold. One of the things that he says is there are other sheep that are not of this fold. And this time has been an opportunity for other people to come into the kingdom. When that process is done, whenever it is, that's when this second thing is going to kick in. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Several things going on here. If one were of a Trinitarian persuasion, which I am, one would see Yeshua being God there. And then going to gather up the sheep but the interesting thing is I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy 
The implication there is that the fat and the strong have gotten that way by nefarious dealings with the weak. There isn't anything sinful about either being fat or strong, per se. But in context, what we're talking about is the idea that the weak are being preyed upon and people are becoming fat by preying on the weak. Verse 17, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep and between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? As for you, my flock, I would judge between sheep and sheep and between rams and male goats. So these are people of Israel least in context. And we have just gone through the passage where he excoriates the shepherds for not doing what's right. And I'm not sure whether he's aiming this at the shepherds or at the fat and the strong, which we talked about earlier. And the idea here is we're dealing not with ordinary greed, but with spite. The deal here is I have eaten and I've eaten all I want to eat, and there's still something left to eat. So instead of just saying, I'm full, and walking away, what they're doing is they're spoiling what's left for the rest of the flock. So you're talking about spite here, and you're talking about malice, as opposed to simple greed. Comment was that this would also apply to Satan. Satan had everything he could possibly want except worship as God. And when he was unable to attain that, what he did is in spite, he's come down here and he is muddying up the water that we have to drink and treading the grass in so we have to eat muddy grass. I would agree that that metaphor works. Comment wasn't even getting us to do that to each other. Yeah, I would agree. Verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I personally see this as David, red-headed David, raised from the dead, not a metaphor for Yeshua. I see this as David himself, raised from the dead and set on the throne. Nobody's going to ask me, and if it's the house of David or Yeshua being of the lineage of David or any of that kind of stuff, it'll be what it'll be. But it seems to me that this is a resurrection kind of a thing. The other thing is the metaphor that he's using here is between shepherds who have fattened themselves at the expense of the flock and then members of the flock who have fattened themselves at the expense of their brethren unjustly. 
He's not talking about you gobbled up all the grass or you gobbled up more grass than you needed and hence your fat. That's not what we're talking about. What he's talking about is not only have you gobbled up the grass and are fat, but you have shouldered the weaker ones out of there so they haven't been able to get any. Verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved him. So this is going back and gathering the lost sheep. Verse 28, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. Mount Seir, of course, is Edom, the Edomites. This is one of a series of prophecies against the people around the nation of Israel for the way that they have behaved when Israel was in difficulty. We've done Egypt, we've done Tyre, done Sidon, all of those, and this now is Edom. Of course, you all know that the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Obviously, Israel is a descendant of Jacob, Edom is a descendant of Esau, and there has been both rivalry and cooperation between them over the centuries. Verse 4, I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I've said this lots of times, but I'll say it briefly again. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, etc., when they come in and invade Israel, are doing so because God sets them up. God says, you guys have gotten so bad that I'm going to have to send you into exile. And he uses Gentile empires to do that. And yet he turns around, often in the same breath, and says, now I'm going to judge you for having done that. And the way I read that is, yes, I wanted Israel chastened, but you guys engaged in unnecessary roughness. You went far beyond what I had in mind, and because of that, I have a problem with you. In the case of Edom, what happened is when Israel was taken out, the Edomites wouldn't give them refuge. And in fact, 
took advantage of those who were fleeing the destruction. So rather than helping and giving them aid, not necessarily military aid, I'm, I'm talking about coming and duking it out with the Babylonians or the Assyrians. I'm talking about you have refugees coming from the battle and the Edomites were taking advantage of them as opposed to helping them. That's what we're talking about here. And the idea that they wound up then shedding blood, God, measure for measure, will shed their blood. Verse 7, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because they did not offer aid to their cousin, God is not happy with them. Verse 10, because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Remember Tyre rejoicing at the destruction of Israel earlier on? And one of the reasons for that rejoicing is Israel controlled the land trade routes between Egypt and Europe. Tyre controlled the Mediterranean. So when Israel was taken out, the commercial competitor was removed. So they saw this as, whoo, we're going to get rich and fat now that goods aren't going through Israel anymore. The same kind of thing is happening with the Edomites. If you look at a map, you have these two parallel routes. One of them goes up the coast through the pass at Megiddo and on to Damascus. The other one goes up what are now the Jordanian hills on the other side of the Jordan River and on the other side of the Dead Sea. That's where Edom is. So what you have is this commercial competition, if you will, of who's going to be able to collect tariffs and tolls on the roads, or however you want to describe it. But this trade between Egypt and Asia was a great source of the wealth of David and Solomon and the United Kingdom. All that trade passed through, and some of it stuck. So one of the things that God is grumpy with Edom about here is they're looking at Israel as a trade rival, not helping the Israelite refugees, and saying, ooh, we got it all now. And that's what this passage is saying. 12. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate, they are given us to devour. And you magnified yourself against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God. While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. And as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir and all Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So what I just said, when Israel gets taken out, they regard 
One of the things is the removal of a trade competitor. So chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because the enemy said of you, Aha! And the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God. Precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so you shall become the possession of the rest of the nations. And you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys and the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Let me pause there for a moment at verse 6. This is just by way of interest. You've all heard my riff on male and female, that female is executive, male is initiative. God is male. He initiates. The earth is female. It executes. So the earth takes the information that God gives it in the form of his word and brings forth plants and flowers and people and all that kind of stuff. So that's a feminine function, which is execution, as opposed to the masculine function, which is initiation. God very often talks to the earth as if it were able to understand him. For example, one of the things that happens fairly frequently is God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you, as if these are witnesses. Similarly, the earth cries out at the blood of your brother. And we, in our Western mindset, take that as being metaphorical. And it may be. It may be entirely metaphorical. Or maybe it's not, because the the scriptures are just full of God regarding the earth as something that can understand what he says. And, And in a sense, it can, because when God says, let there be, the earth brings forth. So in that sense, it does understand what he says, and it responds to him. So when God speaks to the earth, the earth responds to him. Our Western mindset is all of this is poetic and metaphorical. And it may be, or maybe it's not. I first noticed it when he used the phrase, I call heaven and earth to witness, as in these are the ones that are going to execute judgment if necessary, which they do. So I'm all the way to verse 6. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. And again, he's talking to the land. I had wrath against my people because of the way they were behaving in the land. And because of that, you, the land, have suffered. Remember back in Deuteronomy, one of the things that Moses says is if you follow the ways of the people that you're displacing, the land will vomit you out. It's a very personal 
kind of a thing. And so what's happening here is God is saying, okay, the people of Israel defiled the land, therefore I have brought judgment upon them and sent them into exile, and in that process you, the land, have been damaged. But I'm going to restore you. Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. Not only am I going to repair you, I am going to take vengeance on those who defiled you. Verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you. And I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you. And the whole house of Israel, all of it, the cities shall be inhabited, the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Remember what the spies said about the land. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. And so what's happening here is the wrong people are in the land, and the land then devours its inhabitants. Similarly, when Israel defiles the land, the land again devours its inhabitants. 13. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. The metaphor, if you will, is the exiles or the surrounding nations, I'm not sure which, have said that this is a land that devours its people. And what God says is, yeah, you did, but you won't do it anymore. Verse 15, and I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. The idea of speaking to the land and the land responding. So it goes clear back to Genesis, if you will. 